Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Uh, I want to sort of uh, begin this sermon by um, suggesting that you probably know what the word depth is in reference to, right? You probably know what that is in reference to. Um, it's the important and variable variant of rings and modules and commutative and homological algebra, right? That's, that's probably what you were thinking. Uh, it's also the number of bits in computer graphics. Uh, it's the size of an order needed to move a financial mar market a given amount. That's what you were thinking, right? Um, it's a coverage in generic sequencing. You know all this, Bruce. You know what this the depth refers to these things. Um, it's an indie video game. It's a 2004 novel by Henning Mankell. You've all read Depth, right? Um, the Oceana album from 2009. The Wendy and Carl album from 1998. That Depth, that one? Depth? Depth refers to that, right? Um, the Law and Order episode. Remember, it was like midway through 2007, that episode that was called Depth? Remember that one? Yeah. Uh, the Japanese title for the PlayStation game released in Europe under the name Fluid. It was Fluid in Europe. It was Depth <laughs> here. Come on, people. Um, it's the asymmetrical multiplayer video game for Microsoft Windows. Depth, that one. And Depth is a vertical distance, isn't it? Oh, okay. Okay, here's where I'm going with this. You know what a Christian is? Um, a Christian looks like me, right? 40, white, bald, needs to work out more. Um, did you know that the average age of Presbyterians across the different Presbyterian denominations, this, this church is a part of a Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the average age for Presbyterians in the United States is 59. So I'm not the average, I'm a young buck according to that. Do you know that 29% of Americans aged 18 to 29 say that they read their Bible at least once a week? So over one in four people in that age in the United States say that they read their Bible at least once a week. You might know this, that Latin America actually surpassed Europe for people that are Christians, just in the broadest sense, um, in the year 2014 as, as the continent that had the most Christians on it. Latin America. You might know this, though, that within four years, in 2018, that shifted to Africa. Uh, Asia is second now. Um, you might know this, actually. This is, this is kind of interesting. In the year 1900, only 18% of global Christians had some connection with the Southern Hemisphere. All of the Southern Hemisphere, 
18% in the year 1900. Anyone want to take a stab at what, what that number is now? What percentage of global Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere? 65? That's so close, I'll just take that. 67, that was a very good guess. Um, right now, there are approximately, this is, a, this is the educated guess, 669 million Christians in Africa. Guess what their average age is? 19. 19. So when you think, like, what does a Christian just physically look like, you're probably talking about sub-Sahara Africa, woman, 19 years old, African. So what's a Christian? I mean, you can just sort of give demographic stats. If you're sort of into politics, you probably go, oh, a Christian votes like blah, 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 you know, like that. Um, that's certainly what political pundits want us to believe, right? They kind of diagnose it in terms of political affinity or what, how they think somebody might vote. Um, the Atlantic has a podcast called The Experiment that's all about different aspects of American life. And last year they had an episode titled Evangelical is not a religious identity. It's a political one. That's kind of an interesting take on Christians, Christianity. So what's a Christian? Okay, so we come to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6 is basically right in the middle of the book. Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. But if I told you, like, what's Nehemiah about? You know, I'm, I'm on the credentialing committee of our Presbyterian. Maybe I'm giving you an oral exam. And you say, oh, Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. I would say, yes, you pass that much. But actually, we come to chapter 6, and what we find is that the, the work is sort of done in a way. It's, you know, twice it mentions that the walls were rebuilt. I mean, this is how it begins, right? Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that, there was a and that there was no breach left in it, I love this parenthetical comment, although up to the time I had not set the doors and the gates. He's like very, being very exact and very clear. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together in Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Did you notice how quickly it just seems to go, ah, oh, the, the, the walls were built. Well, let me tell you about what's going on with these, these, uh, this opposition still. If you, look, if you go down to verse 15, it says this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, it's like they just, it just jumps. In. The main thing it seems like this book is about, this whole rebuilding these walls, it's mentioned twice and it just quickly jumps into what's going on situationally. It's done, and you'd think that's the main point of the text, but it's actually not the main point. That, it's not the emphasis of this chapter, oddly enough. Even when it mentions that the work was done, it seems to be starting to talk immediately about the people that are connected and what their thoughts are about it. Um, when I first came to this chapter, this was my thought. Oh, man, I've got to preach another passage on opposition. Chapter 4 talked about external opposition. Chapter 5 last week was internal opposition. Do I need to give another sermon on like, these, this opposition? But I think, actually, there is sort of a different way that we can consider this passage. And it sort of gets at this question of what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Because this passage seems to make some clear, clear distinctions, but then it gets fuzzy a little bit, too. And there seems to be a progression as we sort of walk through the people of this passage. So that's what I want us to do this morning. 
And first, I want, to, I want you to consider Sanballat and Geshem. Sanballat and Geshem. Um, verse 1, it said, it lists, well, it lists Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. But then actually, once you jump to verse 2, it just says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. Um, it, it, Tobiah is missing, and so I, I think it almost invites us to say, well, what's going on with just these two people? And what we find is that these two people are saying, Nehemiah, come out from where, with the work that you're doing and come. And, and this plain is sort of the northernmost part of what it would have been the territory of Judah at the time. You would have kind of, kind of up near Samaria. Um, and so it was kind of getting him as far away as possible that he might feel comfortable in from the work that's being done. Um, and what they do is it says that they do this four times. And then the fifth time they do this, it gives a couple cues as to what they're trying to do. It says that it's an open letter, right? It's an open letter. Um, well, let me read this. Verse 5. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. And so what, what they're doing is they're being very open with all the surrounding people because the letter's already been opened, assuming that it might have gotten passed around is sort of the way that, you know, the thing that they're trying to say. And they're trying to get everybody else on board against what's happening there in Jerusalem. Why do I go into these details? Well, Sanballat is the character, and Geshem here, these are the characters that you're like, they're definitely not part of the people of God. You know? It's, it's just very, very obvious that what they're doing is actually hostile, and they don't even want, they don't want to become a part of the Jewish community. They don't want the Jewish community to, to, to thrive in this situation. They're just kind of like, this is not a good thing. You know, they're stirring up dissension, saying there's a king in Judah. And, and he, this is clear that they don't want anything to do with it. What I'm saying there is that there's some people that you're like, okay, well, they just don't even want anything to do with Jesus. You know, if maybe you remember reading, or maybe you did read some of Sam Harris's work, or Richard's, Richard Dawkins' work. Or maybe actually you can think sort of with me of maybe family members that you have. I have family members that I've prayed for for a long time, and they really just don't want anything to do with Jesus, and they're open about it, right? They just say, like, I, don't, I think it's all crazy. I think you're a little wacko for being a pastor. Or maybe you can think of neighbors, and they're just like, they're clearly not... Christians, and they own that identity, and you know that, and it's just sort of clear what's going on. Um, maybe they're hostile, maybe they aren't hostile, but everybody kind of knows what's going on. Um, and so that's part of what's going on in this passage. Now, Nehemiah can just say, actually, this is verse 8, he says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say has been done. Have been, no such things of you, as you say have been done. If you're inventing them out of your own mind, that. Um, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will be done. What's happening here is that it all just seems clear. It seems clear to Nehemiah. It's clear to like what's, everything, everything seems clear in the community. These people don't really like the Jewish people. They don't like what they're doing. They don't want to support it. They don't like, you know, the Lord, all this sort of stuff. It's just very clear. But I mean, when I ask the question, was a Christian, the challenging thought part about that question is that sometimes it doesn't feel very clear, right? Sometimes you might have an idea and your ideas get changed as, you, as it goes along. Sometimes you just know that there's people that you're like, that, that person only is involved because like their dad was and their dad was and their blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all these other things that are just not as clear. 
Okay, so check out the next kind of group of people, uh, Shemaiah and Tobago. Um, let me read this part, verse 10. I'm going to read down to verse 13, okay? Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who is confined to his home. Let me say this. Just This is a, just a word of um, learning how to read this. The, the trick with reading words like this is reading them fast. Because you don't know if I'm reading them right or wrong, but if I read them fast with confidence, you're like, Peter knows how to read all that stuff. Um, who is confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God did not send him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah, and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So, okay, Shemaiah. Well, what's clear about Shemaiah is that he's certainly part of God's people in this situation. right? I mean, he lives within Jerusalem. In fact, Nehemiah goes and visits him, it seems. Um, and as far as we can understand, put things together, Shemaiah is a priest. He's actually somebody that could go into the temple. Now, Nehemiah is not, actually, which is one of the reasons why Nehemiah says, hey, you're, you're, you're inviting me to sin because I cannot actually go into the temple and where you're inviting me into in this situation. But here's what's happening. This person works in the house of the Lord. Right? He's probably a trusted person in the community. He probably speaks and people go, oh, it's a man of God. He even initially, this is kind of interesting, as you read the text, you might initially think, this guy's got some good intentions. He's looking out for Nehemiah. He seems to be protecting him. I mean, this is what he's saying, right? They're coming to kill you. Quick, come and hide in this safe place, the temple itself. But what we find out, and fairly quickly in the text, is that he, he's, he's a total ruse. He's out for his own good. He's a fraud. Um, he's a sheep in wolf's clothing. As Jesus himself would say, he's a whitewashed tomb. He's using religion. Okay, Shemaiah is, this, this is what you're supposed to think about Shemaiah. Shemaiah is saying, yeah, see, look, I'm a religious person. You can trust me, but all along he's in it for some ulterior motive. And, I mean, we all know, right, that this happens. He speaks for God, it seems, but what we read is that he's a false prophet. And actually what we find out is that there's other false prophets. This is how it actually goes along, right? Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets. So there's multiple people that are in this situation. They're actually speaking for God, it seems, but they're in it for themselves. We all know this is true. We all know people that just totally look the part. You know, they know how to use religious language. Maybe they go to church. 
Maybe they know how to go through the movements. But what we find is that their hearts are elsewhere. It's all intended for some personal gain. They're in it for what they can get out of it. Maybe church is a place where your kids can learn good morals. That's hopefully true. But that's not the goal of it. Maybe uh, they use the right religious language so that they can get the votes against their political opponents. That's just a way of using it. In it for themselves. Maybe worship is just something you go to when it's expedient, when it fits your schedule, when you can say at the end of the day, man, that benefited me. You see how it's bent towards self? It's a using of religion. Um, Jesus, again, knows these people. He says, beware of false prophets. Matthew seven fifteen, who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inward, inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ravenous. What is that? Eating up. Taking. They're using it for their own self, that they can be fed, that they can have. There's another, another kind of these like fuzzy folk here. Tobiah. Um, verse 17. Listen to this. Um, Moreover, in those days... The nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonanan, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, Tobiah, so far in the book of Nehemiah, you just know he's buddies with Sanballat. You might remember when we were out at Schaefer, Tobiah's the guy that said, yeah, if a fox runs up on that wall, it's going to fall down. You know, he's buddy buddies with, with Sanballat, and all along you know that Tobiah's not a good guy. But here, what do we learn about Tobiah? Um, there were nobles in Judah that sent many letters to him. And Tobiah's letters came to them. Okay, so there's a noble class in, or, in and around Jerusalem in, in the surrounding area, area of Ju Judah, and they're buddy-buddies with Tobiah. Okay, so he's kind of in with, with people, right? And you actually get the sense that maybe he's not just in, in with people sort of on this friendly level and this pol uh, political sort of power dynamic, but he's actually sort of married into the people of God, too. Um, this is what you get when you read the next part. It says, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Okay, that's the power stuff. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. Okay, so he's married in to this Jewish family. But beyond this, actually, it says, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam. Jehohanan is the Jewish name for John. So he's probably actually, you know, somebody, you know, we know he's the, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, right? He's from, he's Ammonite, but he actually, maybe he was sort of grafted in, right? What you're supposed to get is this idea is that this guy actually was converted in a way. 
And he was even baptized. And he was part of the people so much that he, you know, his letters were read by the nobles. And he was married to this family. And they had this child. And they named them this religious name. And they were totally enmeshed in this community. I mean, this person is sort of in. He's one of us is what you're supposed to kind of think. <clears throat> but I think this is also the sort of person that our Lord also speaks about. Uh, Matthew 3, Luke chapter 3. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Or of course, I've been baptized. Look at the family I'm a part of. You see, he's using these things. He's using these relationships. He's using all this stuff, it seems like, for his own gain once again. But we find out there at the end of that section in verse um, 19, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Here's what I'm suggesting to you. The Bible acknowledges uh, this question, what is a Christian, is sort of hard to answer at times. I mean, our Lord himself called out religious people for the fact that they were using their religion for their own personal gain. But it's not something that's lost on the rest of Scripture either. Like, when you look out into the world and you go, what is a Christian? It seems like people are just using Jesus. And you look out and you read all these stories of these pastors, right? Who run off with all these mistresses. Who abuse their staff and all this kind of stuff. In some ways, you should look at the Bible and go, well, that, unfortunately, that makes sense. Because people have been in it for themselves all along. They've been taking, they've been using Christianity, they've been using religion for their own gain. I mean, we know, we know that there's the sand ballots, right, and the Geshems that are just sort of clear-cut, and you're like, they're not even feigning Christian faith. But we also do know that there's the, gosh, I'm going to forget how to say this guy's name, the Shemaiah. Say it fast, yeah, Shemaiah. And the Tobias, who we go, what's going on there? But at the end, what we find out is that it's about themselves. There are a whole ton of people, pastors, parishioners, that are using God, religious language, Christianity for their own gain. Or I could even put it like this. They're in it when it suits them. may seem like a strange way of putting it, but I think this is fair enough. Maybe they worship the Lord on Sundays when they didn't get an invite to brunch. And you know what? Their kids don't have any sporting events going on. And everything else just seems to not be inviting them to do anything else. And so it kind of suits me, and so I'll maybe go and spend time with God. Do you see how that's actually more, mostly just based on sort of yourself? It's kind of an odd dynamic. Maybe they attend church because that's where you can find a good spouse. You see how that's just kind of bent on the self? Maybe you use religious language because that's when you can get a vote. Maybe that's where you get healthy and wealthy and wise. They're in it for when it's expedient and for when it's helpful. 
The Bible and Jesus himself say that discerning what a Christian is is not necessarily always an easy thing. You can be duped. I read a stat a couple years back, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, I couldn't put my finger on it this week, but it was something along these lines, that 80% of evangelicals that said after the 2016 election that they voted for Trump, of the 80% of evangelicals that said they voted for Trump, the statistic was that 5% worship weekly. And I guarantee that they could, they could be said on the other side of the aisle, okay? I don't think that's the right-left thing, actually, very much. It just might be that you're a mainline attender occasionally. Um, but it's so easy just to use these words. It's so easy just to say these things and to just be in it for yourself, for your own gain. So as we walk through this passage, this is what we're seeing, right? The, the, the Sanballats and the Geshems and the Mahaliah and the Tobiah. Finally, we actually see these two guys, Hananiah and oh, Hanani and Hananiah. And I think what we are invited to at the end of this section is actually a glimpse of true faith. Okay, a glimpse of true faith. So this is uh, the beginning of chapter 7. It says this, Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge, of Jerus charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Okay, so he's commending for us finally at the end of this section these two people, Hanani and Hananiah. Hanani we know a little bit about. You might remember him. Actually, in some ways the whole book sort of begins with Hanani. He's the one actually with other leaders from Judah who made the long journey all the way over to Susa, the citadel. Remember, it's at the the northernmost part of the, of the uh, Persian Gulf. It was a long, long journey. And um, he's the one that came and he told his brother Nehemiah, the walls are in ruins. He gave the report. So what we know about him, though, is that he was a, he was a, he was a person who had some vision of what was going on. And he also had some hope. And he also maybe remembered the promises that God had made in the prophets that one day, actually, not only would the exiles be rebuilt, but Jerusalem itself would be raised up in such a way that the nations would see the glory of God. Psalm 67 tells us this, that even people from Babylon, remember that's the, the people that took the two southern tribes away in the second exile, even people from Babylon would say, my springs are found in Zion. And so Hanani might have been reading that and thinking, you know what, this looks like a complete mess, but I believe in the Lord. I'm going to go and, and get my brother who's this powerful cupbearer and say, can you do something? Can you help us? And he's been working alongside his brother this whole time. So Hanani, you have this sense, this is somebody of great faith who's willing to take risk, who's willing to risk the long journey, but believing that God would do what he said. But then we have Hananiah. And what we hear is that Hananiah was faithful and God-fearing. Faithful and God-fearing. And this is a really interesting kind of word to put because actually fear is something that is 
often mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. And most of those mentions are in chapter 6. Um, you might remember um, that Nehemiah said that he was afraid when he went to speak to the king in chapter 2. He was full of fear that he might not be able to actually go back to Jerusalem. That the king might not grant his request. All this kind of stuff. So there's fear mentioned there. Um, you, might mention, you might remember that the people of, that were doing the work around the wall, it was said that they were fearful of Sanballat and Tobiah in chapter 4. Um, Shemaiah, here in this chapter, it said, was hired to make Nehemiah afraid. He was hired for that purpose. Um, Tobiah sent letters, it said specifically, to make him afraid. Um, the false prophets here in chapter 6, in verse 14. They were doing what they were doing to make them afraid. It seems like there's this fear thing that's going on. And this seems to be a driving thing of this chapter. But Hananiah is appointed not because he fears Sanballat and Tobiah, not because he fears the king or anything else, but what we get the sense of is this person is faithful because he fears the Lord. That all of his life is oriented towards God, being in awe of him, and also saying, you know, if he's for me, nothing else can be against me. And with that, I want you to think about Jesus, right? We have this amazing passage in, um, in the Gospel of Luke. It's in chapter 22. And at least in Jesus' uh, human, humanity, he clearly had fear. He knew what was going before him when he was in Jerusalem. He knew what he was walking towards, his death. And, you know, this passage where he withdraws himself, this is chapter 22, he says he withdraws himself about a stone's throw away from, from his disciples that were there with him. And he kneels down and he prays and he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Right? He's saying, I don't want to experience these things, these troubles, this opposition, this death this abandonment, this betrayal, all the stuff that he's about to experience. And yet he's able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That Jesus himself is able to say to the Father, Father, into your hands I'll commit my spirit. Just like here, this man is able to say, or, or what we learn about him is that he is a God-fearing man, that he doesn't fear the things of this world, that everything seems to be oriented not towards himself or towards others around him, but towards God. And I'll just suggest to you that at least from this passage, this is the indication of what a Christian is. Somebody that walks in the way of the Lord, that has their life oriented not towards themselves and not even towards the things that are outside themselves that might cause them to fear, but that their life is oriented towards God. And so they can be said to be both God-fearing and faithful. Now, I read this quote at the beginning of our service from Alexander White. And one of the great temptations, right, in, in the Bible is to look at people like David and Daniel and, and John. and Not Peter so much. But we, you say, oh, be a Daniel. You know? Be a David. And what Alexander White is saying, and what we all, all need to hear, is this, this passage is not about being like Hananiah, Hananiah or Hananiah. It's not about being like Nehemiah. 
What this passage is saying is that to be a Christian is to be oriented towards Christ. To find in him your life, to find in him your hope, to orient everything towards him. Because as much as, as Hananiah was able to walk in this way that fears the Lord and is faithful to him, Jesus is the one that does this beyond anyone else, right? When Jesus actually walks in the way of faith, when he says, you know, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What does he do? He actually goes into the most fearful places. I mean, he goes to the cross. That's fearful enough, actually, to your death. But he does that in the context of being betrayed by his dearest friends, being completely abandoned by everyone, being mocked, being spat at, right? Having a crown of thorns put upon him, a, a robe, being, being completely sort of dejected in every way, tossed aside. Basically, what, Jesus, what we have in Christ in the cross and in his passion is all of our deepest fears of loneliness and death and being mocked and betrayed and all this stuff coming to its focal point. And yet Jesus himself was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. And he's able to walk in the way of faith. Why? Because he's not all concerned about what everyone else is doing, and he's not even concerned about his own well-being, but he's concerned about submitting to the will of the Father and trusting that in doing that, that in submitting to the will of the Father, his good is found. That is what it means to be a Christian, to lay your whole life before God and say, not my will, but yours be done, to take up your cross and follow him, knowing that your cross actually is not the end of the story. This is what it is to be a Christian. To not use the Lord, but to put your faith completely in him. Let me pray for us. Um, I will say that Nehemiah, I could have just talked about opposition this morning. But I think this is an important thing to wrestle with. And I think Nehemiah even invites us into this question. Lord, pray that we might walk in faithfulness to you like our Lord Jesus himself. God, I pray that we won't be full of fear, that we might uh, use you for our own gain. And that we might not disown you when people think being a Christian is funny and silly and backwater. Lord, I pray that we would fear you and be faithful to you. That we would see that Jesus himself goes to the place of ultimate fear. And you hold him close all the way through it. That Easter came after Good Friday. That glory came after the abandonment and the shame of the cross. Lord, I pray that we would lay our lives before you. That we would fear you and you alone. And that we would walk in the way of Jesus, the way that leads to life. It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.